We're going to get started. Uh, good morning. Uh, Rich and Jonathan aren't here today, so they asked me to follow up um, with the uh, cookie learn trivia question we do at the beginning of Grand Rounds. This week's topic was food safety. You might have noticed that we have a new um, portable demonstration kitchen, uh, which Rich has supported, um, where we can with. Um, pans and induction burners and convection ovens, so we're hoping to bring you even more exciting food demonstrations in the next few weeks. The trivia question um, for this week was on last week's topic, which was whole grains. And I don't know if anyone uh, noticed we um, uh, the last picture of the slides this morning was a picture of our esteemed chairman rolling sushi. We actually launched the kitchen a couple of nights ago at the Weight and Wellness Center and rolled some sushi. Um, so uh, you might want to talk to Rich about that when you see him. He's a very good sushi roller. So this week's um, question was name three whole grains, and we had someone who was uh, an overachiever with five, oats, whole wheat, barley, spelt, rye, and this was M. Stoffer? Stoffen? Oh, good. And the prize this week is a sushi mat. <laughs> you can roll your own uh, brown rice sushi. <laughs> Come on, you, I can bring it up all right, thank you very much. So um, I'm Brian Marsh. I'm the um, chief of infectious disease here at Dartmouth. So every, welcome to everyone to our medical grand rounds. Um, our speaker today is Dr. Mary Margaret Andrews, and she told me as brief as possible. So <laughs> we'll be as brief as possible. So Dr. Andrews, the associate prof in the section of infectious disease, um, she um, graduated with an MD from uh, Columbia and came to Dartmouth and has stayed at Dartmouth, lucky for us since then. Uh, did her residency fellowship, joined the faculty, probably joined the faculty in 96, 7? Yeah, 96.7 has been with us since then. Um, in addition to um, running our OPAT program, which feeds into her presentation today, Outpatient Parenteral Antibiotic Therapy, she's also the uh, principal investigator for our Ryan White Part D program, which is the Women Maternal Health Program. Um, and her presentation today is entitled um, Life-threatening infections related to injection drug use, complications and ethical issues during outpatient treatment. Um, so, Mary Margaret, um, brief and all yours. Thank you. I appreciate the briefness. I forgot to put my microphone on here, so let's just... So I'm very pleased to be here, and one of the reasons that I'm pleased to be here is that this uh, talk actually brings together all the different parts of my job. Sometimes I feel quite schizophrenic because, as Brian mentioned, I have many different roles, both as an inpatient consultant and with the HIV program and with the Home IV Antibiotic Program, the OPAT program, but this talk actually brings together all of those things. So. I'm having a little trouble with my microphone, so we'll, they'll let me know, I guess, if it's not good enough. I'm going to be talking today about life-threatening infections related to injection drug use, and I'm going to use the term injection drug use throughout my talk today. Uh, there are 
are other terms in use, and the most historic one that you'll see used is IVDA, uh, intravenous drug abuser. The term injection drug use is a little bit more generic. It uh, takes into account the fact that you really can inject any drug, and it also takes into account that many of these uh, people who use injection drugs are not uh, don't meet criteria for dependence or addiction or even abuse sometimes, unless you define using drugs as abuse. So it's a more generic term. And just so you know, you will also see a new term in use that's similar to what's happened within uh, the HIV terminology, and that is PWID, people with injection drug use, or people who inject drugs, I'm sorry. So I chose not to use that term today just because it seemed a little bit more confusing, but you will see it coming in the literature. I want to spend, uh, if possible, 15 minutes or so talking about the converging epidemics of uh, heroin abuse in specific, hepatitis C infection, HIV infection, and infective endocarditis. And then we'll talk uh, in a little bit more detail about some of the clinical elements specifically uh, focusing a bit more on tricuspid valve endocarditis. And then I want to leave plenty of time to talk about some of the discharge and outpatient treatment uh, and ethical dilemmas, because there's really a lot of controversy about how we care for these patients. And we have some special participants in the audience today who may be able to help us think about that more. While we go through these areas, we'll There'll be lots of opportunities to remind you about infection prevention related to HIV, hepatitis C, hepatitis B, other STDs, and that will come up really in a lot of different contexts. And in the HIV world now, we don't just talk about prevention, we talk about our responsibility to actually link people to care. So when you identify somebody who has one of those infections, it's also part of our responsibility to be sure that they can get treated. So I'll start with a case scenario. Some of this, uh, someone who may be familiar to some of you in the audience. She was a 23-year-old from rural New Hampshire who had a history of psychiatric disease and opioid dependence and past psych admissions and admitted to active injection drug use. And she presented with a week of progressive right flank and back pain. Unfortunately, she had been seen in the previous week in several outside emergency rooms with this pain and had been discharged without a clear diagnosis. She then went on to have the acute onset of lower extremity weakness and came to the Dartmouth-Hitchcock emergency room where she was found to have an extensive thoracic epidural abscess. She grew MSSA, I'm sorry, MRSA from her blood and she was taken urgently to the operating room for decompression laminectomy of this uh, extensive epidural abscess. While she was here inpatient, she never really engaged with mental health care despite attempts by multiple people on her team to talk with her about her drug use and the long-term health complications. She regained a lot of strength in one leg but uh, not the other and ultimately was discharged to a rehab facility to complete eight weeks of IV antibiotic therapy. She was seen in follow-up in the clinic and appeared to be doing well although she was still adjusting to being a paraplegic and doing self-catheterizations. She also had started to have recurrent urinary tract infections. About a year later, she was readmitted 
with a bacteremic illness and SSA this time. A source for the bacteremia was never found. She was never clearly uh, shown to have endocarditis or another clear source for infection that admission, although she uh, was evaluated for multiple septic joints. And she received a four-week treatment course for uh, this bacteremia and uh, then was not heard from for quite a long time. During that admission, she also received some focused inpatient uh, interventions to try to work with her on her substance use, but she remained relatively unopen to long-term treatment or care for that. Uh, unfortunately, this week again, she called our office and said she wasn't feeling well. Uh, when our provider, Dr. Zuckerman, called her back, she was not uh, able or willing to come to the phone, and he passed along the message that she ought to go to the local emergency room and be evaluated for possible recurrent bacteremia. This isn't an unusual case scenario, unfortunately, of relapsing, remitting disease. Infections are very, very common and one of the greatest morbidities in people who inject drugs. This is an example of a soft tissue abscess here and some track marks. And skin and soft tissue infections are by far and away the most common infections seen in injection drug users. Uh, the other infections here are all possible, and we're, uh, later in the talk we'll talk a bit more about endocarditis. Bone and joint infections, remember, are particularly challenging because they require specific antibiotics that can get into bone and long, long courses of treatment, especially if they're chronic infections. Patients with injection drug use can have embolic phenomenon and uh, central nervous system strokes. They can have abdominal uh, mesenteric artery strokes and ischemic bowel. They can infarct limbs. Uh, they have more uh, community-acquired pneumonias, higher rates of tuberculosis, higher rates of pulmonary abscesses, especially in right-sided endocarditis. Uh, in terms of hepatitis, in addition to hepatitis C and, and B and other hepatitis, viral-borne or viral and blood-borne hepatitis, they also can have uh, abscesses in the liver and extensive splenic abscesses and infarcts as well. I'm not going to present a case of ocular infection today, but this is something we have seen several times on our consult service in the last year. Someone complaining with new visual complaints and uh, has evidence of endophthalmitis that is, as you know, an emergent uh, situation that requires surgery and injection of intravitreal antibiotics and systemic antibiotics. And uh, this is sometimes a associated with candida infections, but can be seen with any endocarditis infection. About uh, 20 to 30% of the mor mortality associated with being an injection drug user comes from these infections. And I would say to you that these get a lot less press at, in, the, in terms of uh, risks for opioid abusers, and they also are uh, things that I think patients know a lot less about in terms of their own risk when they think about how to protect themselves when they're injecting drugs. In the U.S., there are uh, many, many people who inject drugs at this point in time, and the U.S. epidemic dwarfs, is dwarfed by the global epidemic, which we're not going to concentrate on today. Globally, there are about 13 million injection drug users, and many of them are in developing country settings. In the U.S., uh, the current estimates are there at least a million, if not more, people who are 
actively injecting drugs. And in a recent New Hampshire survey, as you'll see, the uh, lifetime use of injection drugs was in the 4% prevalence range. There's been a lot of data coming out about the US opioid epidemic and the deaths associated with it. And I'll first touch on the national data and then move into the local data. This is a summary of statistics that was recently released from the National Statistical Center from the Centers for Disease Control. And part of the point I want to make is that as uh, people in the U.S. and uh, both providers and law enforcement focused on not having patients divert prescription opioids, there's been a plateau in the prescription opioid uh, associated deaths and a marked increase in the heroin associated deaths. And whether this is just supply and demand or people who were already addicted to pills and then just needed to find another substance to use, or uh, we aren't exactly sure. But this is the trend that's being seen nationally. These are young people. And you see in this next slide how over time uh, the rates of uh, death are going up in all age groups. But you see this particularly steep incline in the 25 to 44-year-olds and also in the 18 to 24-year-olds. And this is a national epidemic. This slide shows the different regional rates. And uh, you see that the Northeast, where we are, is very much affected, as is the Midwest in 2013. The fact that this, these uh, opioid-related uh, events cause morbidity has uh, started to hit the press in other ways. This is a recent summary from the Healthcare Cost and Utilization Project, HCUP, talking about the hospital inpatient utilization related to opioid overuse in adults and documenting the significant increase that's been seen over the last uh, 10 years and especially over the last five years. And specifically in these bullets uh, summarized on the right side, you'll notice there are some important, point made, important points made. And uh, just to mention one that may be relevant later, the bottom bullet, that many of these patients are Medicaid patients or uninsured patients. And that has a direct effect on our hospital and our ability to uh, provide care in the outpatient setting for some of these patients. Our local epidemiology is changing also. And uh, fortunately, just this week or last week, there was some new data released by the New Hampshire Department of Health and Human Services about drug use in New Hampshire. And uh, this website, this uh, wisdom website is a public website that's available to all, includes not just uh, drug use behavior, but many other resources if you're interested in looking at it. On the left, you see the opioid-related emergency department use and observation stays and the increases that have been noted over uh, the last several years. This only goes to 2009. And on the right side, you see the all-drug overdose deaths, including opioids, and the very dramatic um, increased rates that have been being seen. The total death number in 2013 was 146 uh, drug overdose deaths involving opioids in New Hampshire. 
In terms of heroin use, there also has been a, a documented increase in the rise of heroin locally. And in 2013, 66 of those deaths that I just mentioned were heroin-related, which is 45% of the total opioid-related deaths. And on the right side, you see graphic depicting uh, where in the state some of the uh, highest rates of these deaths have been seen. And Nashua and Manchester and Hillsborough County obviously are very much affected. Um, the northern part of the state is less affected, but suffice it to say, every case I'm going to present to you today is from northern New Hampshire. So this is the Vermont data. And uh, unfortunately, it's very similar with a total of 88 drug-related fatalities uh, reported in 2014. We have not talked about uh, gender, and I guess I should, be, should mention this before moving on. Uh, historically, most injection drug users in the United States were male, young males especially. But over time, uh, certainly a number of injection drug users in the HIV population were women. And in this era, fully a third of the young injection drug users are female. So there's a much greater, uh, much more balanced gender distribution in this current epidemic. So let's move a little into some uh, news about hepatitis C and where we might be going with this. And uh, this is a summary paper that I'm going to share with you that was recently published in Clinical Infectious Disease using CDC data about reported hepatitis C illnesses with the caveat that in many states hepatitis C is not reportable, including New Hampshire. So this is just from states that have hepatitis C reporting. Documenting the emergence of hepatitis C virus infection in young non-urban patients who are injecting drugs. The bottom uh, slides show you the, the all ages and including and the uh, age less than 30 distribution and also the, uh, the total reported cases. These cases come from uh, many parts of the United States, but in this study they actually shared a sort of geomapping project and you notice that this epidemic is very regional. As you might expect, these are people who are sharing drugs with each other. And so uh, you can actually find localized counties or cities where there's much more of a problem than other places. And these are non-urban, remember. And if you look in this uh, slide, they're showing particularly the, the trends in people uh, who are the proportion that are non-urban. And you see that this is really a striking change, that there really is a focus now on young people acquiring hepatitis C in the non-urban setting from injection drug use. Just this week, there was a, a report from the Centers for Disease Control talking about HIV infection in injection drug users in 20 cities in the United States. And the estimated uh, prevalence of uh, those living with HIV was about 11%. 63% were aware of their infection. Uh, many were not using condoms, although there was a, a pretty decent condom use in young men who had sex with men in this study, which is unusual. 
of the people uh, who were HIV negative, about half had had an HIV test in the last year. And unfortunately, they saw no significant change in the HIV prevalence trends over the last few years with the percent of these individuals who are aware of their HIV infection. So uh, they felt this report documented the need to really target HIV prevention to people who inject drugs and give access to needles, treat for substance use, uh, use opioid substitution therapy, educate and test partners, and use PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis, meaning for very high-risk individuals who are sharing needles with an HIV-positive partner, treat that person with antiretrovirals preemptively in order to protect them from HIV infection. One other comment about injection drug users, and uh, that is to just point out, this is CDC data looking at the diagnosis of HIV infection in people who inject drugs. And uh, to go back to my comment about the number of female injection drug users, you see the last line here showing uh, these relatively significant rates and increasing rates in women. And the majority of these infections, again, are in people under the age of 45. So to shift now into a little bit about the epidemiology of endocarditis and injection drug users, the presumed incidence of injection drug use-associated endocarditis is between 1% and 5% per year, and it accounts, as we said, for many of the hospitalizations and deaths. There's a very high risk for recurrent endocarditis, a very high mortality, especially for left-sided endocarditis. Uh, the garden numbers that we quote for a staph aureus left-sided endocarditis for someone not admitted to the ICU might be in the 30% range for someone who's admitted to the ICU and has a, a cardiovascular complications, maybe 50%, uh, even higher, sometimes 80% if they have prolonged septic shock. The mortality for right-sided endocarditis, as you'll see, is significantly less, maybe 5%, maybe 10%, but significantly less, which is fortunate. Again, uh, these, event, these episodes of endocarditis in young injection drug users are seen as sentinel events for the same package of risk reduction methods. And um, uh, this is, again, coming from multiple sources, but the same concept. So recently, there was a report at the Infectious Disease Society of America meeting in the fall about the prevalence of hepatitis C and the epidemiology of infective endocarditis in injection drug users in central Kentucky. And this was the first report that I saw bringing together all these problems in one place. And um, I'm not from central Kentucky, and our nurse practitioner is from Kentucky, and she could maybe tell us more. But my assumption is that this is, we probably share a lot of similarities with uh, or, uh, rural Kentucky. So this was a, a retrospective study that they performed based on some um, observed trends in increased incidence. And they basically went ahead and found subjects who uh, had endocarditis, and uh, they went ahead and tested them for hepatitis C and found these very high, uh, they had pretty good testing rates, actually, of this population for hepatitis C, which was the good news. And in this uh, uh, companion paper, it's the same co cohort, uh, their colleagues from cardiology reported 
a little bit more about the actually the disease characteristics. And I want to point out that for tricuspid valve disease, you see this marked increasing trend between 1999 and 2010 in tricuspid valve disease, which reflects the increase in the uh, prevalence of uh, injection drug users and associated endocarditis. Uh, it's worth noting, though, that a good number of these individuals also had multiple valves involved, and we'll talk about how that complicates things in a minute. Many of them had large vegetations. Many of them, about a quarter, required surgical treatment. Their mortality in these studies for this population was in the 25% range in the 30-day mortality. And something that we also have seen consistently, the average length of stay for this population is 13 days. That hasn't changed in 15 years. Uh, that's about how long it takes to pull everything together, both to make someone feel better and then to treat all the complications and pull together an outpatient plan for this population. Here is some local data that we also pulled uh, because of concern about seeing more cases of endocarditis. We keep an OPAT program database, and uh, we have uh, informal notes, I'd call them, about uh, who may or may not be an injection drug user. It's actually hard to identify injection drug use or uh, other substance use using EDH and HDRS. And um, Dr. Finn, who's with us today, has tried to do some of that. And it's tricky because there are many codes that can be used. So this is using our informal notations to self in our text box within our database and um, showing you that there's been a pretty significant increase in the number of endocarditis cases that we're seeing each year that are injection drug use associated. I did look to, at the age and compare the age of this pre-2011 cohort versus the 2012-13-14 cohort. And uh, the percent that are in the 20 to 40-year-old age group, or uh, I'm sorry, 20 to 50-year-old age group, is actually only slightly larger now than it was. It's about 35% of our total endocarditis cases. So we're going to shift gears and talk a little bit more about the clinical aspects of endocarditis. Now that you have a sense of some of uh, the, the urgency about what's going on and where we might want to go with it. I'll give another brief case scenario of a patient who was a 26-year-old young male injection drug user who presented initially with a streptococcal uh, endocarditis that was very severe and ultimately uh, resulted in needing an aortic valve replacement because he had such significant uh, destruction to his aortic valve. A source was found for that uh, infection. He had a dental abscess that was ultimately extracted, but he admitted to injection drug use and um, uh, was using drugs probably during his hospitalization stay and then also uh, uh, immediately had trouble when he left the hospital. He was subsequently readmitted with uh, ischemic left middle cerebral artery stroke and um, had a prolonged hospitalization during that time. He subsequently had another hospitalization where he had staphylococcal bacteremia and um, methicillin, I'm sorry, a mitral valve endocarditis. And during that hospitalization, 
uh, he had his central nervous system re-imaged, and it was clear at that point that he had a mycotic aneurysm uh, related to this initial embolic event in the central nervous system. He spent a very long time in the hospital. Um, he's cognitively challenged at this point in time, physically challenged related to his stroke. And um, it's really a very sad situation all the way around for those of you who helped to care for him over the last few months. I'll make a few comments about the pathogenesis of endocarditis. And um, first of all, when people inject drugs, in addition to injecting anything that might be on the skin or maybe not taking the time to, to clean the skin, sometimes they will uh, use saliva or uh, suck on needles or do other things to try to make it easier to inject. And also drugs are sometimes cut with talc and other materials. So when they're injected, uh, they can easily attach to the endothelium, either of the heart itself or other blood vessels. And this graphic shows how the um, inflammatory response starts and sets up shop. And you'll see the, the particulate matter accumulating here in the heart and starting to uh, create this inflammatory response on the valve. And to mention briefly, one of the reasons this disease is so hard to treat is that this vegetation that's developing on the valve is a clot, essentially, of fibrous material and platelets. And it's extremely hard for antibiotics to penetrate this vegetation. And this vegetation is actually multiple areas of infection that the body has tried to wall off. And many of these bacteria in the vegetations are in uh, not replicating quickly. They're in quiescent states. They're sort of semi-subdued, but they're not eradicated. And they're particularly difficult to treat for that combination of reasons. Here is a picture of a vegetation or pathologic specimen of a vegetation. And I want you to remember this concept of vegetations. <laughs> it's never just one vegetation. It's always these multiple little vegetations that are seen, usually on the atrial side of the, uh, the valve uh, in the direction of the regurgitant jet. You're all familiar from medical school with the complications of left-sided endocarditis and subacute endocarditis, where people come in with this panoply of, of symptoms, and fever may or may not have constitutional signs, may or may not have heart dysfunction, and all these uh, famous embolic and immune phenomena that can be seen in endocarditis. We're not going to focus as much on that today and try to take a little bit big picture view and talk about some of the main principles. Um, first of all, that subacute syndrome is less common in injection drug users. They tend to come into care more readily. And sometimes they have what we call an acute endocarditis syndrome. And acute endocarditis syndromes have not necessarily had time to develop all the signs and symptoms on the cardiac valve. So as you'll see, many patients actually do not have diagnostic echocardiograms at first or embolic stigmata that you can even see on chest x-ray. In addition, um, like 
as we showed, all the organ systems can be affected, especially if they have left-sided diseases. Uh, they require long doses of therapy. The actual shortest treatment that we ever give is two weeks and uh, for some streptococcal disease, but usually it's in the 48-week range. Prosthetic valve disease is particularly hard to treat. They have these long lengths of stay that is validated by our own data and the national data, and they require a very intensive uh, discharge plan to both anticipate what the drug cost will be, what the payer is going to be, what type of IV access they should have, their risk for drug reactions, and all the monitoring that needs to be set up for the ambulatory side. There's some historic pearls about endocarditis that, uh, some of which are still relevant. So I wanted to just point out this one of my favorite review articles from 1982, Walter Wilson, who's a very well known at the Mayo Clinic in the world of, of uh, endocarditis. And some of the important principles that we should always remember are to establish a microbiologic dosis. You can't treat this disease empirically. So you do whatever it takes, biopsy things in addition to multiple blood cultures, biopsies, uh, biopsies of skin lesions. Sometimes we'll go to really elaborate extremes to establish a diagnosis because it's that important to know what bug so that you can appropriately um, choose which drug. We only use empiric therapy um, in very urgent cases and it, only after the blood cultures are in the, are in the labs. We rarely do MIC and MBC and drug level testing anymore, but this is still something that can be done and it's something to think about in your back pocket. For years, uh, we've consulted cardiac surgery when someone has endocarditis, and you're not always asking for, for the surgery itself. You're asking for the cardiac surgeon's opinion. You're asking for um, them to talk to the patient. Actually, they often have a lot of authority with patients, and they often scare patients, and sometimes that's good. Uh, because they actually can make someone uh, change their behavior. The, uh, you have to administer bactericidal antibiotics, so that limits our, our choices, and we, have, we give them by vein because that's usually the best way to achieve high drug levels with a few rare exceptions that we'll talk about. In the hospital, they need daily exams for emboli, heart failure, arrhythmias, drash, uh, rash, et cetera, and they need frequent lab follow-up. And uh, I think the other, only other points to make here are that uh, something we forget is that to heal this infection, people need adequate nutrition. So if you're talking about uh, discharging someone who doesn't have many resources or is homeless, or uh, that, that can be a major concern. And uh, there is a lot of, uh, shall I say, this is what Walter Wilson said, do not compromise. Physicians should respect the seriousness of endocarditis and should not compromise by adjusting the duration of therapy, the method of administration, or the choice of antimicrobial agent. And this was hard-won advice. This was because people tried and it failed. People do not get better if they're not treated per the standard uh, IDSA and American Heart Association guidelines. In 2015, we also have echocardiography, which is great. For left-sided disease, transthoracic echocardiogram is less sensitive, but it's actually significantly more sensitive for right-sided endocarditis, and that's fortunate. And sometimes we don't need a transesophageal echocardiogram in right-sided endocarditis. We need to be doing routinely uh, urine screens for drugs of abuse and 
addiction or other mental health consults for patients and trying to treat the whole patient. We need, often need fundoscopic exams because involvement of the eye really changes the treatment. We use extensive imaging, even uh, preemptively, especially if someone is going to have surgery, you want to know what they have before you anticoagulate them for surgery and potentially cause an, a reaction. And as I mentioned, you, need, you still need the cardiac surgery consultation, even though sometimes it can be awkward. A few things about right-sided endocarditis. Uh, these tend to be seen in younger patients. Cough is often their only symptom, cough and shortness of breath. They may or may not have a tricuspid valve murmur, and uh, they may or may not have an abnormal chest X-ray. You can see CT evidence of emboli in a very high percent, and in many of the cases that we've been involved in, it, it comes to that. They get uh, a CT scan. And many of them have extravalvular sites. And uh, the key thing here is to discern whether this is related to left-sided endocarditis, mitral valve or aortic valve disease concurrent with the right-sided disease. The majority of these uh, are bacteremic with staph aureus, usually split 50-50 between MRSA and MSSA, but there can be many other common pathogens. Here's an example that is not projecting too well of a recent patient who had some very dramatic changes uh, with multiple very pronounced uh, lung abscesses related to septic pulmonary emboli. She actually had quite a long hospital stay and a long ICU stay related to uh, her severe lung disease. So our treatment options for this right-sided disease are a little different. There's the classic four weeks of nafcillin. And then in selected cases, there are two small historic studies, and I apologize for not putting the reference on, about using a two-week regimen with NAF and GEN versus a four-week regimen with oral ciprofloxacin and rifampin. And uh, believe me, people only tried this because the patients wanted to leave the hospital and they were desperate. They were looking for something that worked and that was shorter. So uh, the, these two studies, the recommendation is that you might consider for someone who's going to leave uh, that regimen, but you only want to do it for people who uh, don't have a, a slow clinical response, don't have complicated disease, uh, for people who you can give the, the preeminent therapy, nafcillin, rather than a glycopeptide, people who don't have MRSA, and people who are not severely compromised in the setting of injection drug use or HIV <coughs> infection. That's our standard therapy. These days, you'll see us experimenting based on some case reports with lots of other things, usually out of desperation. Uh, linazolid is an oral antibiotic that costs on the order of $300 a day. It's equally bioavailable, PO and IV. And uh, it's a static drug, so it is actually not ideal for use in endocarditis, but it's a fallback drug that people use at times. We also now have dalbovancin, which is a lipoglycopeptide related to vancomycin. Uh, it's a bactericidal drug, also costs about $300 a day, but the unique thing is that it's infused once a week. And um, this medication, then, the total course of therapy for a two-week course is about $4,500, requires prior authorization from someone's um, insurance company, and really is not yet proven in endocarditis. There are no published case series. And finally, ceftaroline, which is a new anti-MRSA cephalosporin, 
which appears to be very effective, but again, uh, very little published data. One concern about daptomycin, which is another drug that we use frequently now for MRSA, is that it does not uh, penetrate the lung well. And uh, for people who have a significant burden of lung disease, we avoid its use. The prognosis is variable, but can be good. And uh, there, are some, uh, there are some situations, lots of situations, where people actually do get better. I think in the interest of time, I'm going to skip um, extensive discussion about the role of surgery. I don't see any of our surgeons with us. And um, just suffice it to say, sometimes surgery is needed. There is data about situations where uh, it is important, but something that's often avoided. And the reasons that we often avoid it are the concern really about recurrent drug use and bacteremia in this population, the fact that these are young people and if they do live a full, healthy life, they will ultimately need multiple valve replacements over time. Uh, I think there's a sense that treating people with a valve replacement is futile sometimes. And there's some things in the surgical literature about it being an expensive stop gas gap measure. The pros are that sometimes uh, it is medically necessary and we need to do that even despite, as one article said, people's moral failings. Um, and there really are lots of opportunities to help people change their lifestyle. And so our judgment can get very clouded here. It can be really challenging. To shift into the outpatient treatment of endocarditis, it's really been revolutionized by PICC lines um, in particular. PICC lines are peripherally inserted central catheters that are in place for weeks to months. They cost about $1,500 to put in. And when they're put in the hospital, they're pretty easy to maintain at home, pretty safe with a pretty low infection rate, something in the 1% to 2% uh, uh, line-associated infection over the course of uh, PICC line. However, it's challenging when you're trying to decide, should I or shouldn't I put a PICC line in my patient? And this is uh, something that is coming up literally every day on the inpatient consult service at this point in time. We have some differences between our providers, some who feel that it really is uh, something that should never be done, and others who feel that it's really reasonable to think about it, even in people who inject drugs. And my personal uh, practice is really to take it on a case-by-case basis. And you, whenever anybody says case-by-case case basis, you realize that means it's going to take a lot of time because you have to actually spend time talking to the patient, talking to the patient's family, talking to the CRC, talking to um, mental health if they've been involved, uh, understanding what their resources are and understanding what their risk is to abuse the PICC line. I'll give you a brief presentation of another recent patient. She was a 20-year-old who presented with dyspnea and fever and some chest pain that was very pleuritic in character. Indeed, she had evidence of septic pulmonary emboli and staph aureus in her blood. She was in the hospital for about a week, and then she insisted she needed to go. She needed to go care for her young daughter, and her boyfriend was in jail. And she said she would not use drugs. 
the decision was made to put a PICC line in her and arrange for her to have IV ceftriaxone daily at our infusion suite. And that seemed uh, reasonable because she was a local woman and also because there'd be a chance for people in the infusion suite to speak with her every day and see how things were going. On the, she missed her first outpatient treatment in the infusion suite. And the second time she came to the infusion suite, she was clearly uh, had altered mental status. And um, we were called to evaluate her there and made the uh, uncomfortable decision to pull her PICC line and try to institute an oral antibiotic regimen and try to be sure that she actually could get her body to the pharmacy to pick up that regimen and have it paid for, which is not a simple thing on the outpatient side. Unfortunately, uh, she didn't pick up the regimen. She actually was brought by the police to the emergency room late that, later that night. She's had two subsequent um, incarcerations, and during one of them, that uh, she actually was treated at a, a community hospital for two weeks with a, a intensive anti-staph aureus regimen and then discharged on oral therapy again without a PICC line. And she did um, unfortunately have a sexual assault and our sexual, same nurses, sexual assault uh, nurses contacted me and said she was coming in to get her HIV antiretroviral therapy and would I be willing to see her because she hadn't kept her other follow-up appointments with us. So I did uh, see her in the clinic, and uh, she had a, the cardiologists were kind enough to uh, do an echocardiogram that day that showed that uh, no destructive disease on her heart valve, her chest x-ray has normalized, her repeat blood cultures are negative, and at this point in time, uh, she says she's not using drugs and seems to be doing okay. The Infectious Disease Society of America guidelines, uh, practice guidelines on the use of uh, OPAB, outpatient parental antibiotic therapy, have some specific language about injection drug use. And this is what they say, that people should be evaluated, and if they're going to be abused, they're abuse their lines, they're poor <laughs> candidates. And I'll, I'll let you read the rest of it. In our program, uh, we do have the for good fortune through the help of our um, nurses to really help coordinate the ambulatory care uh, for these patients as well. And before they leave, they meet with our nurses and uh, we try to use this checklist, and I apologize, it's a little small, but this is the list that's on our website that many of you have seen before that we go through to try to say, is this person a good candidate for home IV antibiotic therapy or not? And uh, people, you know, there are certain basic things like are their blood cultures cleared and are the sources of infection drained? But many of the other things really have to do with are they a good candidate to be at home? Do they have running water? Uh, do they have access to a telephone to call you if they're sick? Do they have a place to live? Really other basic things. And we do have a contract, uh, of course, not legally binding, that we ask people to sign about not abusing um, their, their PICC line. And this is a recommended practice, although obviously not binding. It's really uh, used to raise education about the concerns about PICC line abuse and uh, preemptively saying to people, we will take your PICC line out if you are abusing it. Having a PICC line is a privilege, not a right which sometimes I think some of the discharging teams forget, so. 
Just briefly want to mention that infectious disease really is uh, sees disease patients now on the inpatient side and the outpatient side. And when you're planning a discharge, we really are both invested on the inpatient side, but also we're the receiving providers. Uh, almost 50% of these patients come from the hospital service and have no discharge follow-up anywhere else in the hospital other than with us. Or they have one discharge follow-up visit with neurosurgery or one discharge follow-up visit with orthopedics. So we are the receiving provider. So we've spent a fair amount of time trying to impose ourselves, if you will, on um, before people go on what we think is an acceptable process. And uh, sometimes we can't all come to agreement, but we, we take a lot of time to try to do that before people go home and uh, so that people, the plan does not fall apart. I'm gonna just say briefly that in general with our program, we're spending a lot of effort to try to move all that work away from the discharge day. It all should be done way earlier in the admission. We can tell you already who's gonna to need to go home on IV antibiotics. And so uh, we're trying to get people to call us earlier and really start those conversations way in advance of the discharge day because there's a lot of work behind them, not just conversations, but also uh, things that the CRC, have to do, CRC has to do. In those conversations, historically, there's a lot of focus on patient autonomy. And I would submit to you that with this particular patient population, we really need to use our own judgment and not let patient autonomy be the only thing driving the discharge plan. I can't tell you the number of times we go to see someone in the hospital and they say, well, the patient wants to do this. And I say, that's nice, I'm glad, you know, thank you for letting us know, now let's talk about what's realistic here. <laughs> and so then you have to go back to the patient and you say, I understand you wanna do this, but I don't think that's safe. And you know, let, let me tell you what I think would be a couple safer options. And believe it or not, sometimes patients will actually say, thank you, okay, I think I could go along with that. So it's always worth a try. I wanna just uh, tell you briefly about the novel, a few novel things that are going on and um, one is that people are experimenting using security seals on PICC lines. And these are, uh, I'll show you a picture. This is from a big hospital in Singapore where they have many injection drug users. They basically put this seal over the PICC line when someone leaves. And then each day when they come in for their infusion, they see whether the, uh, the seal is manipulated or not. And they remove it and do the injection and then put a new seal on it. So this is something we're considering. It's not been widely adopted in a lot of places, and it really only works if someone is coming in for daily infusion, which is really a small percent of our OPAT patients. I have to go back briefly. Um, we prefer people, if they're going home, to get VNA services, although some patients refuse, and sometimes the VNA refuses. Uh, we try to get people to go to residential facilities. Um, and to mention uh, uh, some novel models, uh, uh, there are several really interesting things that people have adopted in Harborview in Seattle, which is a large you know, community hospital with a lot of injection drug users. They've, uh, they've actually own a residential facility where they refer their homeless and uh, disenfranchised patients. The patients stay there while they're um, in getting their endocarditis treatment and they've had very good success, 70, 80% sex sex rate with the treatment, 20, 30% readmission rates. So this is a, a practice that 
uh, if we could find a suitable residential facility, it might be helpful to us. And um, many, many places are studying the homeless population in particular and showing that you can give safe, good treatment for homeless patients. You just have to set it up appropriately. So uh, we do try hard to monitor people's outcomes. And so to let you know uh, about a new process that we have, we, will, we are looking at readmission rates in this population. And we're doing new quality improvement reporting on this population, because our readmission rate for people leaving on OPAT is still significantly higher than the hospital's target of 10%. So I've told you nationally, it's still in the 25% range. Ours right now varies. It's about 40 discharges a month. So we're still significantly over that. And you may be receiving um, an email from us that looks like this, that says, your recent inpatient discharge was reviewed by our committee. And uh, we thought that there were potentially some, some issues that happened. It was either classified as a failed ambulatory discharge, sorry, uh, the things that are being flagged are 30-day readmissions, unnecessary pick line placement, unsuccessful discharge plan, like it fell apart the day someone left the hospital, and other best practices, including needing um, ID consult before people leave, which is an automatic policy in our hospital, um, the, getting the IV antibiotic and the med medication <laughs> reconciliation, and then appropriate lab monitoring. Unfortunately, in our current process, we're really lacking a lot of good data. And we, this is what we need to do better on, in my opinion. We need data on what percent of these patients actually get drug tested when they're in the emergency room getting admitted. We do not have uniform HIV, Hep C, and Hep B testing. And for people who've been uh, tested there, for Hep C in particular, most of them are not linked to care at the time of discharge. We need better data about the infection outcome and readmission rates. And we have almost no data about the numbers who are engaged in substance use treatment or not, and uh, their long-term relapse, drug use, and um, sobriety. So my question for you is really, can't we do more to help these patients? We have a rich existing infrastructure, which is underutilized. Many of these patients are not seen by the addiction service um, in the hospital. And the addiction service comes at things Sometimes from a very formal model, you know, they're really doing a mental health assess full mental health assessment and substance use assessment, and they're not coming every day just to uh, chat with someone. So that uh, it may be that even within our existing infrastructure, we want to look at, you know, could we do things a little bit differently? In the really novel department, um, I'm uh, really hoping we get to the point where we have a behavioral health liaison, and I'll tell you more about a psychiatry program that's doing that in a minute. Uh, we could do something very novel with licensed drug and alcohol counselors that we employ. They don't make a lot of money, unfortunately, for them, but fortunately for their employers. Um, we could use health coaches. Uh, our HIV nurses are very skilled in talking with people about HIV and hepatitis C and uh, safe sex. So there are lots of, lots of opportunities for us, and we just really need to get going. The novel psychiatry program was started um, by Dr. Finn, who's still in the audience. Thank you. And it really was a way to try to flag people on the inpatient service as someone who potentially had substance use issues. And then 
get someone from their team there and uh, meet with someone in a, on a supportive basis daily, involve the physician, social worker, or uh, other professionals on the team as needed, and uh, really try to do an inpatient intervention. Remember, some of these patients are in the hospital for 13 days. So the first week, they're really sick. The second week, they're less sick and maybe ready to talk. So this team, uh, this behavioral intervention uh, is something that's relatively novel from what I understand. And this uh, model of screen, brief intervention, and referral treatment, SBIRT, as exemplified by the Vermont Mental Health website here, is a very common outpatient intervention, but not as common on the inpatient side. And what, part of what Dr. Finn's program has done is really try to bring that to the inpatient side. So hopefully we'll talk about that more in a minute. These are my take-homes, that we really uh, have a converging epidemic here and the problem's not going away in the immediate future, unfortunately. That there are some suspected, uh, sorry, some clinical care pearls that we need to suspect this problem. We need to use the tools we have. We need to remember that people feel better when their blood is cleared, but that tells you absolutely nothing about what's going on with their heart valve or the other deep sites of infection. And we really need to treat the person as a whole uh, and take the broad view. In terms of the discharge and outpatient care, we ought to use our, honor our gut instincts, sometimes over patient autonomy. Think what's best for the patient, but also for our institution um, and also for the people, other people in the states. Use QI to inform our process and we need new strategies. So I think I'll end there and uh, maybe ask first for Dr. Finn to comment since uh, I specifically mentioned your program. And I don't know if Ben Nordstrom is here. I didn't, I was. Yeah, well, thank you. And thanks for that great um, overview of sort of what's happening locally and more broadly. Um, yeah, I completely agree. This is a really challenging population. I'm sure all of you have taken care of these patients in different settings. Um, the challenge for me often is when these people come in acutely ill, actively using drugs, they aren't really at a point where they want to be sober often. You know, they're not coming in saying, I want to get sober, help me. They're coming in because they were so extremely ill that they were brought in sometimes, you know, kind of against their will or against their knowledge and kind of wake up here at the hospital. So, um, so being able to do some of the more intensive motivational work with them uh, would be great. You know, would really be something I would love us to be taking on more actively because um, often they're not interested in treatment. They're not interested in referrals. And the, the cycle continues, as you illustrated with your cases, that they go back out and they start to use again. And you would think, you know, from the extreme nature of some of their medical concerns, that that would be a big wake-up call. But um, it's really not sometimes for some people. And, and they often go on to relapse again following hospitalization and, of course, the issue with the decline often comes up as well. So we would definitely like to be doing more with these patients. Um, and as was just mentioned, we've put in some funding to try and expand the behavioral intervention team. I think that would be that natural kind of collaborative force for this kind of um, intervention and would give us some other options. Um, but outpatient as well, we have a substance use program. We have an intensive outpatient program. Um, those are probably underutilized. 
Um, and then the state, unfortunately, um, has relatively limited resources. We're pretty um, limited in this region, even more so than the northern part, as you were referring to. So definitely have to work hard to get these people into treatment. Thank you. I'll just... Uh, so I want to just acknowledge one other thing, if I could. I forgot to mention our members of our advisory committee who are listed here, uh, many of whom come from lots of different parts of the institution and have been very helpful. And also, uh, we're, we're, looks like we're forming an ad hoc working group. <laughs> and uh, anybody who's interested in, in joining us, uh, we welcome your ideas and see if we can uh, come up with some kind of concerted approach within the institution at a minimum. So. All right, well, thank you very much, Mary Margaret. Thank you. I don't know if I can hear it, so people need to leave, but uh, we can probably take a couple questions while that's